welcome back to the rewind i'm josh and this is a podcast where i watch a bunch of movies and talk about them with my friends today's episode is about tar joining me the rewinds resident bach fan ben lubin ben how's it going uh let's let's talk about this movie i saw six weeks ago we seem to be like trying to extend the the time between me seeing the movie and talking about it further and further every time I feel like we've I feel like we've done like more than six weeks before, but you know oh, we definitely I'm, have. Uh, pretty sure it was like, pretty record, sure it was like six months for the um for what's the what was the uh, first cow was the record. I think. Yes, 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 that one. <laughs> so I, I think I think we can get it going there. I think I, I think we'll be okay. Also joining me, I I appreciate her taking a break from uh, trying to a hundred percent recreate Lydia Tarr's wardrobe. It's Kayla Stetzel. Kayla, how's it going? Uh good, good. Um, <laughs> Tar was the first movie I've seen in unfortunately a long time. And I picked what? a good one to get kind of back into the movie groove. So. Well, yeah, that's, that's, that's a fair point to make because uh, I, Kayla recently actually started working as a lawyer after having, you know, been taking the bar exam and doing all that fun stuff. So I, I think I think this is a worthwhile one to like make your return to the theater for, for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Tar is the newest uh, the newest movie from uh, writer director Todd Field, who returned to feature filmmaking after a 16 year hiatus since making uh, 2006's Little Children. That was his follow up to his debut in the bedroom. Tar tells the story of a fictitious fame composer slash conductor, Lydia Tar, played by Kate Blanchett, who in the world of this movie is a living legend. She was uh, mentored by Leonard Bernstein, was an EGOT winner, the conductor, and is the conductor of the Berlin Philharmonic. She lives in Berlin in an immaculate apartment with her partner slash concertmaster Susan. Uh, Lydia also runs a fellowship program for aspiring women conductors. Though oddly, we learn early on, doesn't seem hell-bent on keeping it a program for aspiring women conductors. She might want to open it up. And, you know, that's uh, one of the first tells. There might be a little bit more to her than meets the eye. But on the surface, she seems like she has everything in life going for her. But, you know, as we kind of like, as this movie kind of unfolds, you see there's like, you know, cracks under the surface and like she might be, uh, she, she might be, uh, you know, not not all that kind of just meets the eye to the public, though she uh, puts a very, very specific kind of image out there. Uh, I, I think, first of all, we're going to say that, like, I think both Ben and Kayla and I would highly recommend this movie. And I think even if it's like something that like, even if it's something that like, you know, uh, I think in, in some ways could end up having like divisive reactions at the very, very least. A movie like this is very, very interesting to think about and talk about. So I don't think there's like, I think there's very few people who, if they do love movies, like wouldn't want to at least like be able to see it to be able to talk about it is I think a fair way to put it. But at the same time, kind of hard to talk about in depth without like spoiling things. So we're going to have a pretty open conversation, like right from the front. Um, but fair, fair to say both of you guys would recommend this movie to all the listeners who want to go away and then come back. Right, Ben? Yeah, I'd say this is definitely one of my favorites of the year so far. Uh, Kate, Bl- I will die on the hill of Kate Blanchett deserving an Oscar for this one. Uh, although that didn't quite work out for me last year with Nightmare Alley, so let's hope <laughs> for better luck this time. Um, yeah, yeah I'm, I'm I'm a big fan of this one. Uh, I think it's a legitimately complex uh, exploration of deities contained within it. It balances like 20 different tones incredibly well. It's just a really incredible feet uh on a, a narrative level on a filmmaking level on a performance level it's it's just a really incredible film you said it well do you have anything you want to add to that kayla before we actually jump into talking deeply about the movie because i know you enjoyed it as well yes um so i echo everything that was already said mm-hmm. of course and if i had to use one word to kind of describe this film it would be striking mm. um or perhaps sticky um mm. because it definitely has a lingering effect in your mind. I thought about this film for a while um, and it would kind of float around in my brain for weeks after. Uh, But yeah, it's beautifully shot. Um, 
grapples with some really complex topics and overall is a very in-depth, you know, um, analysis of one person's character, which is Lydia Tarr. Um, oh, yeah. So you really just kind of follow her throughout the film. And it's also very, even though it's about music, very loud classical music, it's a very quiet film and there's a lot of space in there. And you can really like feel all the emotions boiling up um, in this really wonderful kind of rich atmospheric environment. So 10 out of 10 recommend mm -hmm. also fully down for a Kate Blanchett mm -hmm. uh, Oscar. I think yeah. this would be her third Oscar, I believe. So number three. Yeah. 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 I mean, and I, I, I don't really have a ton to add to what you guys say. Cause like my, my biggest takeaway thoughts, like almost like kind of like spoil story points. And I think it's kind of more interesting to kind of discover what this is about as it goes along though. If you're, if you follow like just like, you know, online movie news and stuff, I'm sure that like certain headlines will kind of even spoil where this movie goes. So not a ton to add, but you know, if you really, I mean, I, again, I just didn't really have an interest in talking a long time about this without getting into the specifics. So if you haven't seen it yet and you care about like not having story points spoiled for you, go away and then come back. Uh, I think one thing you touched on Kayla there that I wanted to, which was funny, it was right where I kind of wanted to start with you. you mentioned that it lingered. Ben said at the top, you know, like I'm used to kind of doing these movie, these episodes with him long after he sees these movies because he has LA privilege and he can see stuff early and I don't. And, uh, and so, but I'm curious because like usually I'm seeing it a little closer to when you viewed the movie, when we talk about stuff and you said a lot of it lingered with you. And I'm wondering, is there one, is, is there a particular point in this movie, a, a particular part of it, a particular choice, a particular story beat, a particular shot? Is there something about it that has stuck with you the longest? Because we're, we're doing this about probably three plus weeks after you actually saw the movie. Honestly, mm -hmm. there's not one particular moment that stuck mm -hmm. with me about this film so much as the overall tone of it. Um, okay. Throughout the movie, there is this just creeping anxiety and atmospheric tension and paranoia which certainly mirrors what's happening with our complex protagonist um mm -hmm. so that feeling kind of stuck with me and the farther out i got from seeing it i also saw it again a few weeks right, ago cool. um and i got some different takes out of it the on, upon the second viewing i started really thinking about the the messages themselves about you know spoiler alert one of the big if not the plot point of this movie has to kind of do with cancel culture and the Me Too movement, but that almost is a little bit too narrow. Um, I would say it really has, is about, you know, can you separate the art from the artist or, you know, the scholarly work from a scholar if they have, uh, you know, a blemished past? And in doing so, are you limiting yourself intellectually or artistically? Um, I think is kind of the the theme of this well, yeah. film. There's other I mean, stuff in it too. It's very complex, but as I continue to ruminate about this film, um, I started really grappling with that idea. Uh, and I definitely think that Todd Fields made really intentional choices with the fact that the protagonist is a woman and also a lesbian, um, because I think if any man, uh, whether gay or straight, occupied that role, it would be much more difficult for anybody to kind of grapple with these ideas. Um, mm. Having her be a 
female character kind of, at least for me, allowed me to really ruminate about what's being said. I definitely, I, I feel like I have, it's, you don't really see these topics of conversations come up with a, you know, central female figure of power, right? We're used to seeing it, you know, the Harvey Weinsteins of the world, et cetera. So yeah, that kind of definitely, I think, would open an audience, including myself, to kind of grappling with that, these ideas on a more, I don't want to say sympathetic, but just a more well-rounded um, way. Whereas if it was a man, at least for me, I would just kind of immediately be pitted against them. Whereas well, I think this it's... Oops, allowed sorry, for more opportunity to reflect. It's okay. Go ahead. Well, no, I, I think the thing that certainly jumps out to a lot of people is that he, it certainly seems like Todd Field was very, he just dove right in and like attacked a lot of this stuff and did so and, and, and was not really like afraid to go to some like what other might, people might describe as very uncomfortable places. Though I think one thing that you, you touched on a lot there and one thing I wanted to touch on before I threw it to Ben, because Ben opened up by saying he was impressed that it like carried like 20 different tones. And, and, and you kind of went over a lot of the different plot points of the movie that it kind of like that, that, it, that, that were, were a lot of different places where this movie goes, where it does have to touch those various tones. And like my biggest takeaway from the movie that I'm still thinking about, and I've, it's only been like 10 days since I saw it was like, man, like how did and how fraught our culture is in talking about cancel culture these days? How the hell did this guy like make a movie about an actor that was embroiled in all of that? And uh, and somehow maybe it make her like, I mean, I think the degree to which people empathize with, sympathize with her is going to vary, but like the fact that he made it like, so it's like at least a, some, to some extent, a sympathetic character, but at the same time, doesn't feel like an artist whining about cancel culture and how like people can't just do what they want to do these days. I'm like, how did you like manage to do that and not come off across as like feeling like whiny or upset with like your ability to make the art you want to make. And I thought that was like the kind of the most impressive thing that's really stuck with me about this movie is like how he went to that kind of subject matter and like, didn't feel like he did it in like a way that like rubbed me the wrong way. I'm wondering, what do you think the key was to him being able to like manage all of these tones you referenced, Ben? Well, so a couple things. One thing I just kind of wanted to jump in on real quick. Yeah. I'm, I'm a big fan of kind of character studies as a genre. And, and, and like Kayla kind of set up, this is very much a character study that mm -hmm. uses a strong and complex character as the center, both for the narrative and the way we actually inter interact with the film itself. Mm -hmm. uh, there are very few moments where we are not either directly focused on, on Lydia or where we drift too far from her physically. And almost every frame, um, yeah. Almost every frame. One of the things I love about character studies as a, as a quote unquote genre, they allow us to dive deeply into the minds of complicated people. Uh, and they're able to deal with messiness in a way that I think broader or kind of ensemble films don't. If you are living in someone's skin, you are experiencing things from that character's perspective. Like there's, there's a movie I really love from a few years ago called Laura. Uh, it's a, a Paolo Sorrentino film um, that is a thinly disguised biopic of Silvia Berlusconi. Um, Silvia Berlusconi was not a very good person. Is hmm. not a good person, I guess. The movie does not try to redeem Silvia Berlusconi, but in allowing us to see the world from his perspective, we don't grow to have kind of kinder feelings about the person himself, but we do understand the way that type of person views the world. And on some level, if we view filmmaking or art as an empathetic exercise, that is filmmaking at its highest form, allowing us to see the world from the perspective, like from the deeply lived in perspective of a person whose worldview is repulsive to ours. 
And, and I think that there is something about the way the film centers, like the way Tar centers Lydia or Linda, spoilers, perspective. Yeah. Um, and that's something I really want to jump into, by the way. Hmm. Uh, the way it centers her perspective in the way we actually view the world around her. Uh, kind of the way, as, as kind of the, the tension rises, as her anxiety rises, as her comfort dwindles. We see that reflected in the filmmaking. We see that reflected in almost the tone of the world around her until we have kind of that almost like histrionic explosion of her kind of seizing the stage towards the end. One thing I really wanted to talk about though, there's another movie that I've sort of been thinking of in the context of this one that we actually talked about on the podcast and that's Burnman Hmm. Island. Hmm. Because on some level, that film like this one is an exploration not just of being a great artist, but stepping into the historical legacy of great artists. Because we see in many ways kind of Lydia's behavior in Tar is on some level an echo of the behavior of great artists that came before her. And she's almost trying to step into the skin of this is what people in this position do. In the same way that Bergman Island, there are questions of what does it mean to inherit the legacy of a great filmmaker like Ingmar Bergman, despite the fact that his personal character was in many ways not the best. Um, and can you kind of separate that historical legacy of what these great artists were and into something new and trying to kind of create something equally as great, but leaving these like kind of predatory behaviors behind. And on some level, we see towards the end of Tar, Lydia has a very sincere love of music. There is no question that she is actually a great composer who very deeply loves what she does, but on some level she has become so consumed by the role that she is both inhabiting inhabiting and trying to cultivate for herself that she has absolutely lost the purity of that love. And there's kind of that moment um, after her quote unquote cancellation where she is kind of watching those old uh, speeches from, from Leonard Bernstein. And there is just this very real sadness of what has been lost. Um, I, 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 I will say though, one moment, actually I'd say the two moments that really come to mind for me that, that, that have lingered, the, the kind of the, the Bach sequence. It's the scene was, of the year in the movies probably at this point in my opinion. Sorry? Might be the scene of the year so far in all, in all movies. I, I the, the thing that, correct me if I'm wrong, because I think you, both of you guys have seen it more recently than me. That was a wonder, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. It, and it was, it was one of those moments of, a, sometimes with a great wonder, you don't realize until the end that, wait, there has not been a cut. Mm-hmm. And there is something in, in that moment of us being able to inhabit Lydia's skin so deeply that I found really captivating and I think is from a pure filmmaking perspective one of my favorite moments of the year. The other one just because I am a big fan of kind of interweaving magical realism into character studies uh, to reflect the character's internal life uh, the kind of descent into the staircase uh, sequence of her chasing Olga and kind of finding herself in this kind of almost 
unexplainable and vaguely liminal dream space inhabited by this kind of this dog and, and again that was another one of those moments that just kind of really perfectly captured her kind of growing alienation from the world around her um and i'd say those two moments are the ones that really stuck with me and there's a lot more to both of those moments than just kind of that like quick summary of what they are but in gotcha. terms of the scene in terms of the scenes that lingered the, those those are probably the ones for me. Well, well, since you took it there, I want to then ask Kayla, like, because I think we may as well just go there, like, if we already were kind of already at that anyways, that Juilliard scene. And I'm curious, Kayla, like, what was your reaction to that as you're watching it? Because, like, I think it's pretty incredible how that scene unfolds, and I think it gets at a lot of the movies, like, uh, it gets at a lot of what the movies after that you already kind of touched on uh, uh, in your kind of like uh, in your kind of recap you already provided like what was your reaction to like seeing it go there with respect to like seeming like a very charming scene at first then all of a sudden turned into something like way more uncomfortable and deeper well first that was probably also one of my favorite moments in the film mm. but there's a there's a lot happening there aside from her whole discussion about, you know, how do we separate the art from the artist? Um, I also saw like a really interesting generational study going on, you know, as somebody who very recently was in <laughs> law school, I feel very connected to Gen Z students who are very bright. Um, so I also, in addition to kind of seeing you know, this Juilliard you got, student. You, 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 you took a break between undergrad and law school. So you identify as a millennial, even though you were more recently in law yeah. school, correct? Okay. I am yeah. a millennial. I'm a millennial. Um, mm -hmm. But weirdly, I was one of the older students in my <laughs> law class. <laughs> um, I was studying alongside a lot of 22-year-olds. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was, it was very interesting and very complex. And as controversial as it may be, I kind of leaned more towards agreeing with some of the things Lydia Tarr was saying um, from an intellectual perspective. However, what I find very interesting is as the scene builds, you know, you're presented with this Juilliard student who doesn't listen to Bach, doesn't like Bach uh, because of Bach's, you know, philandering behavior. He did have, I think, 20 kids, but I think most of those kids actually came from a single marriage, but that just, that's not brought up. I'm not trying to like pick apart that narrative. And he doesn't want to listen to Bach because he is a queer pansexual person of color. And that's a respectable position to have. But I think at least three times Lydia Tarr approaches him. He gets him to play, you know, listen to her play the piano and kind of keeps pushing him. Like, why won't you listen to Bach? You know? listen, like, why won't you do it? And I think at least three times he just says, you know, no, thank you. And each time he kind of rebuffs her gestures of, you know, listen to Bach, appreciate this music for what it is. Uh, she is the first to lose her patience. She's the one that flies off the handle first. And then ultimately, you know, he walks out of class calling her a bitch. But it's just very interesting because I see definitely kind of like this test of patience there's this, obviously it's an uncomfortable conversation because you see this, this young kid who's anxiously kind of tapping his foot. And I also got the sense that that probably just intrinsically annoyed Lydia Tarr 
you know, she seems like somebody with probably misophonia or really sensitive ears. Um, so I just get the sense that she already kind of disliked the student, um, but she's the first to lose her cool. So it's kind of just, a, I saw it as like a test of general, generational patience, you know, how do we sit in a room and engage with people who, you know, aren't of this generation and have a civil conversation? Is that possible? Aside from, you know, all of the higher questions of can we separate the art from the artist? I saw a lot of generational stuff happening. So that kind of also stuck with me. Well, if I, also, sorry I think, if I got on to a tangent. You're good. I think part of it also is very interesting. I mean, a lot of the movie, not just that scene is about like how she, how she wields her power and how it's, you know, and how it's led her to be somewhat insulated from a lot of what's going on around her. But also, I mean, obviously, and anyone that's accomplished as much as she has can have some level of ego, but also probably thinks she can like, you know, kind of like intellectually destroy any kid she wants to and kind of get her way probably. And you mentioned the foot tapping, which I mean, just made that scene incredibly tense from the, right from the outset. But like, I think she probably recognized it and thinks that this is going to be some kid she's going to be able to use to make her point and probably just get him to, you know, capitulate. And, and, and when he doesn't, I think that like that, that is kind of when she like flies off the handle, she's like kind of probably used to just coming in and dominating a room like that and having anyone get her way. And then she sees this, like this kid that like actually like can stand up to her and she doesn't really, she doesn't really know how to react. And I found that pretty striking. And uh, mm -hmm. though at the same time, I think it's, I, I, I do think it's interesting in how it challenges the audience too. And that like, you know, the, the, depending on what your personal feelings are, you're going to feel some kind of way if you end up like even kind of agreeing with some of the points she's making. And I don't blame yes. anyone for doing that, but it's going to, because it make you feel some kind of way. And like, I think the line, like, I think the line that she says there, and I, I, I tried, I tried to, rec I, I, I did not look it up afterward. It was something along the lines of like the narcissism of, of small differences leads to the most boring conformities or something like that. And it's like, Oh, yes. wow. I can kind of, I, I, I kind of get where she's coming from, but like, she just goes about it in like the most monstrous way. Uh, <laughs> what, what, what really struck you about, about that sequence, Ben, aside from like the, the, the one realization, sure. which was obviously quite fun. Well, I think one one thing I like about the movie as a whole, yeah. again, I, 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 this is the drama I will continue to be. Uh, avoiding didacticism is always a good call. And I think one of the things that's been interesting, especially talking to kind of other people I have seen the movie, I don't think, I, I don't think Todd Field is agreeing with any one character. And I think there's almost been kind of a push to, find okay well what is the right perspective in the movie who who is the character whose argument we are meant to agree with and that's not really what the movie does and it's not really what the movie should be doing like in that scene you are presenting two characters with fundamentally different worldviews who are also people outside of those worldviews kind of what something like it's like Kayla mentioned some beyond the actual perspective of Lydia's argument she is also carrying herself into that conversation, her own impatience, her own domineering behavior. She may be more right in that moment. And I would say I do tend to agree with her, with her more in that particular moment, but she is also kind of an asshole about it. Mm -hmm. And that's also part of this conversation too. And again, the, the, like this kid, he's not really engaging with the actual argument of the conversation, but he's also a student who is young, who is engaging in an argument with someone he respects, who is in a position of power, a position of, of authority, who's significantly older than him. And there are a lot of other dynamics involved in this conversation than just the conversation itself. And on some level, Lydia is either 
unaware of those dynamics or intentionally abusing them. And I would say that whether consciously or whether consciously or not, she is using those dynamics more than she isn't. But I guess just kind of the other thing I was going to say is the some Kayla, Kayla mentioned kind of box philandering behavior. I don't think that's really brought up in in by uh, the student in the conversation. It's kind of the the drumming repeats is Bach was a white man, mm-hmm. and I think kind of the thing about that argument is it's a starting point for an argument, not the argument itself. And I don't know. It, it's. I, I do agree that there is definitely something generational, especially in kind of the way both characters kind of frame their arguments. But I also think, I, I think we are meant to view the, the student's argument as an intentionally reductive form of that argument, rather than just kind of a direct stand-in for kind of a Gen Z perspective. I also don't know a ton about musical, classical music or Bach. So I just assumed like there was probably some really sketchy shit. I didn't know about the flandering behavior. I'm just like, well, this is an old white guy that was a big deal way back when. I'm sure he did some shit. That, so I, I actually didn't really know where else it was going. I just assumed like, oh, he probably has more to it than that. I just don't know what it is. And that was kind of like my thought in that moment. It's like, I'm sure he had, there's like some like definitely eh, kind of sketchy stuff back there. But in, in the moment, that's all he's able to say, you know, and it's because he's being rightfully kind of like kind of terrified. I'm, I'm curious, Kayla, in, in, in like kind of identifying with like the argument she's making there. What do you think about like overall? Because I think you mentioned the choice. You said something earlier in, in response to my first question about just like uh, the the idea of like a, a male filmmaker tackling this and uh, and choosing to do it with a female character. I'm wondering uh, specifically, I mean, well, I think first, like, you know, I think people really respect him as a filmmaker, but if you just kind of hear that a male filmmaker is like making a movie about like a a, a queer woman that is some sort of monster, you're kind of like, you're, you're probably just going to be like a little like, wow, like how, how is how are you going to, how is he going to pull that off? And I mean, uh, but, but at the same time, I'm wondering like what you thought of the choice to even like, you know, Kate Blanchett being like a gay, gay icon aside, like, what do you think of the choice to like have this particular character, like just be a gay woman such that like, I think like, I think Ben was mentioning, like, she might be aware of some other things in this conversation or other things she can weaponize. And like, the fact is like, she probably goes into a conversation like that, like thinking like, look, if, if me, a, a gay woman can like get past all of this stuff, like, shouldn't anyone else be able to, like, what did you think of like, probably like her, the choice to like, kind of go with her, uh, to, the, the choice they make with her sexual orientation and kind of like how that informs the character, both in that scene, but like, kind of also like throughout, as opposed to like, you know, if we were just like watching a white dude do this, like what, what, what were you thinking about as you were watching this once you kind of knew that she, that, that, that she was a lesbian? Well, a, f- a few things. Yeah. Um, I just want to touch, touch base on yeah. some of the things that Ben said that I think also relevant to your question. Right. First to preface, um, I am also a lesbian. So uh-huh. I kind of brought in that perspective to my viewing, but also I, I've been seeing a, a lot of, um, chatter online and critiques online that I feel are trying to suggest that Todd had a particular view in making this film, that he was trying to kind of make some statements about cancel culture, suggesting that maybe it's gone too far. And I agree with Ben that that's probably not really the case. One thing that I felt was so masterful about this film is that I also felt like Todd Field's never really made any statements one way or the other with regard to how he felt or with regard to how we're supposed to feel about Lydia's behavior. He just kind of left it all 
yeah. um, on the table for us. And a lot of it is also just alluded to. So your mind has to fill in the gaps. Um, and I've also seen a lot of people um, and a lot of queer outlets really attack the fact that he used a queer woman to kind of inhabit this, you know, dark, somewhat monstrous protagonist. Me personally, um, I liked it. I didn't see a problem with it. The only issue that my partner had, my girlfriend, was the particular use of the phrase grooming. I think, you know, I think when Lydia Tars first kind of caught out and approached with some articles that I believe are written in the New York Post that allege like she groomed former students. My girlfriend had an issue with that word specifically because it's linked often more so with pedophilia with some bad stereotypes around the you know LGBTQ community. Um, whereas like, I don't know if any of her students were actually like underage or what the deal was. So she kind of bristled at that. For me, um, I just, I found it made the character more complex, more interesting. And as I mentioned earlier, a little bit easier to inhabit. Whereas like, as I mentioned, if this was just a white guy, it'd be much more hard to kind of have any sort of balance or empathy with him, or at least kind of reflect on some possible, you know, sympathy. But in addition, I know she's not the most flattering character. She's really dark and complicated. It was nice to just kind of have a fictional successful lesbian featured in a film. <laughs> Any, rep sure. any representation is good rep representation. And I'm sure, and I probably know for a fact, there's got to be some super awful evil lesbians that exist. <laughs> We're just as complicated and as evil and as confusing as any other orientation or person. Well, I also think it's something uh, we briefly touched on when we did the podcast on Happiest Season. I don't know if Ben and I touched on it so much when we did the podcast on Portrait of Lavia on Fire, but I think we definitely maybe mentioned like how there's kind of like a movement online to like give lesbians electricity. And how, <laughs> yeah. and, and how yeah. like too often uh, these movies are just like about like about the same time period where Portrait of a Lady on Fire takes place. So it's uh, in a different, different kind of modern depiction of yeah, like, this such is a, a woman. This is you a know? modern depiction of not only just a lesbian, but of like one of stature. He got super successful. Um, so even though she's obviously, I, I consider probably a horrible person, um, <laughs> even though she's a genius, it was kind of nice to have that. Um, and I, I disagree with a lot of the commentary online, you know, that Todd was pushing a certain viewpoint or, or that it was, you know, negative for my community. I just found it interesting and an interesting choice and an intentional one. Well, I, um, yeah, I, I certainly feel like he, did, he just handled the subject matter like pretty well, you know, like, I mean, all, all things considered and like it, it just, I mean, I, I don't know how many male directors you necessarily trust to be able to like do that that deftly. Um, but Ben, I feel like I keep asking you different questions and you're ready to respond to something she said. So I'm wondering, did you have anything else you want to say on that on that in response to what Kayla just said? Yeah, I mean, a few things. Um, also, quick quick side note, just because you brought a portrait of a lady on fire. Yeah. Uh, also starring Noemi Merlant. Yes. Yeah, we hadn't um, gotten to her yet at all because yeah. we hadn't really gotten to the Berlin part of the movie yet, but yeah. Yeah, um, but no, I think kind of the, the larger thing I, I kind of wanted to follow up on from Kayla's point, um, one of the things that I really love about the movie I, again, there's sort of been a rush to like kind of label it as a cancel culture or Me Too movie, mm -hmm. but 
the issues surrounding Me Too as a movement, um, predatory behavior within the arts, uh, kind of sexual assault, grooming, or kind of what we can, or based kind of older artists kind of using their authority to, and, and kind of authority and prestige to kind of manipulate and pressure kind of younger mentees into behavior that they would not be comfortable with. Those are issues that existed before 2016. Mm-hmm. They are much larger issues that intersect with so many other kind of larger ideas. Masculinity, artistic legacy, like kind of power as a larger concept. And I think one of the things that is impressive about Tar as a movie, it doesn't feel, I think it is one of the first movies in the last few years that is attempting to deal with these issues in a way that doesn't feel reactionary. Mm-hmm. And again, a lot of that does boil down to this is not a movie with a fixed perspective on how we're supposed to view the characters, how we're supposed to view their behavior. It is more, it is a movie that gives us complicated people who are not necessarily good, who do things we may not approve of. But as, as Caleb put it earlier, leaves it up to an audience to actually sit with that behavior and sit with these people and form our own opinions and reactions to them rather than kind of giving us a fixed perspective that the movie wants us to adopt. And I don't know, I, I just, that to me is what art is supposed to do. And, you know, I, I, I have one friend in particular who did not like Tar at all. And the question he asked me was, what was the point of the movie? And I, I'm, I'm, I'm not gonna like call my friend out by name on here. I love him to death, but he does tend to view film and art through a framework that it is art. Art is meant to accomplish. Art is meant to accomplish a thing. And my opinion tends to be, and this is sort of my own bias because. This is how I view the stuff that I do. The art that has the most power is the art that is allowed to be fully what it is. Complicated, messy, but honest. And and in my opinion, the art that has made the most impact in the world is the art that has been allowed to be that. Art, film, literature, music, whatever. The, like the, the works of art that have affected people the most and that have affected real change they are more often than not undidactic. And I think a movie like Tar that confronts us with these ideas, that confronts us with these behaviors, confronts us with these issues, but does not enforce a way that we are supposed to view them, allows us to have a more honest response to the complexity of the ideas themselves. And I think this film and films like it have much more of an ability to affect real change. Well, I think it kind of goes along with what Kayla was saying too, about how like, and it's funny you mentioned what your friend's asking what the point is. I think, I think a perfectly okay goal for a movie is to do what Kayla said and just kind of like raise a bunch of questions and you don't have to like 
necessarily take a hard stance as Todd Field ne- doesn't necessarily do on uh, some of this stuff. He just puts it all out there in like a in like a very compelling way. And I think you know, setting it in this world where like you know the average film goer is not going to know a ton about that's fine if you create a really compelling world and like any kind of any kind of world about art is going to like provide that space to kind of discuss that stuff. I, I think, I think, I think that's also kind of, unless you had anything else to add, add, add on to what Ben was saying here, like kind of, I, I did want to move on to the Berlin part of the movie and kind of get, get your thoughts on the, on the world he created there specifically. And as he, cause like, that's where more of the movie takes place in like New York, even if they do go back to New York briefly later on, we should talk about that sequence. Cause I think it's really interesting when you kind of get to more of her downfall, but I'm wondering like uh, it, it does jump and we spend most of the movie in this, in, in this Berlin world of this, uh, of the of the german philharmonic and the, the the berlin philharmonic and just that community that exists there that i mean uh kind of allows her like to i mean kind of allows her to like lydia to exert a lot of her power uh and i'm wondering what you thought about how todd field was able to like kind of create this world that is like foreign to like a lot of the people the, the audience of this movie but kind of like instantly make you kind of i i feel like i instantly got what was going on in the in the power dynamics within this community i'm wondering kayla what you thought about how he kind of was able to even though this movie's two hours and 40 minutes i I don't think there's a lot of like wasted space in it necessarily either well first by way of background i do obviously i'm not like a professional musician (laughs) in Mm -hmm. any regard i do have a lot of music in my background so i did feel like i came to it with knowledge of how fraught Uh, with power dynamics (laughs) uh, orchestras can be and my girlfriend also you know she's even more well-versed in that Um, she was like I think I think she may have been like first year flute at some point in her life and was in orchestra at Northwestern um, for at least a time so I was when I was watching this movie I was also just kind of curious like would somebody who's like the majority of people not that knowledgeable about the classical music space or just music in general, could they appreciate this movie to the same degree? Would they be bored by some of this? I was just curious about that. So with that being said, with respect to Todd's world building, it was masterful because he really captured immediately the extent of you know power Lydia possessed first with the long exposition up front, kind of going over all of her accomplishments, um, that kind of set the scene of like, wow, this is somebody at the the peak of the career, maybe more so on the legacy side of it. Um, But second, uh, even the way she meticulously custom orders all of her suits, you get the impression this person has to exercise control over every aspect of who they are and where they are. And even, you know, you see her assistant mouthing everything the interviewer was saying um, at the outset when they're going over all of her accomplishments, which makes you realize as a viewer, oh, this is all pre-rehearsed. So she probably also controlled what is being said on stage. We see Uh, someone editing Wikipedia at some point. I don't know if we're supposed to take that to mean the assistant wrote her Wikipedia uh, and just kind of knew that the New Yorker guy was going to uh, read off of it. I don't know, but it's her image is very metic- very crafted, like you said. It's it's very very controlled, um, and she's used to just e- exhibiting and occupying a space with total control. And the orchestra is a great place to do that. Um, it's so hierarchical um, that you know a maestro is really kind of the king of the castle there. Um, so I just thought. did a great job of kind of explaining that I think just with how 
other people would engage with her. They were always kind of placating her. Um, there was a lot of people begging, you know, for her advice or just trying to get, you know, her opinion on things and she kind of dismisses them. And again, kind of with the Juilliard scene, I know, I believe it was you, Josh, who was like, you know, I don't know how much she consciously used her power dynamics in the situations. For me, I read that as, oh, she's doing this on purpose. She's really leaning into who she is, not, you know, just because she's used to being the most important person in the room. She knows her authority. And, you know, perhaps I've been <laughs> in a lecture hall with professors who also think they're the most important person in the room, which may or may not be true. So I guess maybe I'm just familiar with the type of person who really lords their power over other people, or at least soaps it up in a lecture hall to kind of get uh, where they, you know, to get that respect or to kind of intimidate people with it. They get some pleasure out of it. Also quickly, one word, one, one word, one word that none of us have said yet is the word genius, actually. And that's a, a word that a lot of people have been talking about in relation to this movie. And I think it goes along with what you're just saying. That like, I think she's aware that all the people in that room think of her as a genius. And that's probably also something she's using. Yeah. Um, and I, again, I think Ben alluded to this as well. Like, there is no disputing that she's a genius in her profession at all. Mm -hmm. um, and that's also set up kind of just in the way, in her meticulous nature, it just becomes clear oh, this is a person who really knows what they're doing, who really knows their craft. So none of that, at least for me, was ever questioned. But yeah, I, I may have lost the thread of your question in my ramblings. Well, no, I mean, I, yeah, yeah, well, it's okay. I, I, I guess I was just kind of curious because like, again, that world is very foreign to me. And I thought, I, I thought it was pretty cool how they like quickly like set up just like, oh, how she pulls all the strings here. And I, it's pretty, it's pretty unchecked in a way too, where it's like, she's able to just kind of like, you know, facilitate having this, Olga character like you know be like ascend pretty quickly and you kind of get what the structure is and how she could like play all the like make all of that happen and I and May you I see how like maybe she's been a little unchecked say one thing and this is the yeah. scene in particular where I was like I don't know if a, if a lay person with no musical background would understand how crazy this is mm -hmm. but um to occupy first chair in an orchestra is like the highest honor um, it is classical music and any music really professional music is so competitive and so, um, taxing. So to get to be first chair is an honor. And it's something that people fight for their entire careers. And with that position comes a lot of power and respect. So in the instance where, um, once Olga's brought on, in a guest position in the orchestra and Lydia is kind of concocting this plan to make Olga the soloist, even though she really shouldn't be because the first chair cellist is literally right there and has all of this power. When she asked the first chair celloist if she would be comfortable with holding auditions, that is insane behavior. That is such a smack in the face. Um, and it would be just such a punch to the gut and we just, I feel like everybody in the room, in the orchestra room, their jaw probably hit the floor. But at the same time, because of that power dynamic, right. because Lydia Tar Tar is such a genius, she's also maestro, you get the sense and probably the very real sense that the first cellist could not really refuse. And you get the sense like, oh, she's probably pissed about this, but she's going to agree, you know, just to save face and to kind of, you know, 
recognize the powers that be, <laughs> meaning she really has no choice over the matter, but she's kind of pissed off about it. That was a scene where I was wondering, like, would, for lack of a better term, a layperson understand how crazy and rude and just unhinged that is? I don't know. Did that come across um, to either of you as like a huge smack to the face? Todd, I think, did a good job of kind of creating that sense. But as somebody with a little bit of background in that, it was just like shocking to me. I think I think Ben was trying to make a point. What, 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 what yeah, jumped well, out to you about that, Ben? So just to quickly answer kind of Kayla's question, though, I know enough about the dynamics of an orchestra to know how absurd that was. So I can't <laughs> like... So I, I don't know if I'm the best person to answer, like, is this obvious to someone who just has no understanding of it? But it was very, I, I do think it was presented very clearly in the movie as just kind of, kind of just absurd behavior. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, But kind of the larger point I wanted to touch on, I think one of the things that's really interesting about that moment is it speaks to the way Lydia actually uses her power. Mm -hmm. um, because I think we're used to kind of depictions of kind of dominating authority figures almost being aggressive or violent in, in the way they kind of basically beat people down into acceding to what they want. And that's not the way Lydia acts at all. There is almost just this kind of, un I mean, what, again, I do think some of it is conscious, some of it is unconscious, because she is just so used to acting this way that she doesn't have kind of this thought of, oh, I am going to manipulate this person to do that. She just kind of naturally does it. But there is almost this way that for most of the movie, she just speaks an absurd or demanding thing into existence and naturally expects people to fall into place to accede to what she wants. And that's a consequence of her authority. It's a consequence of her reputation as a genius. It's a consequence of the specific position of authority she holds within this orchestra. But as kind of growing, as, as increasingly frayed and strained as her mind state gets, up until kind of the, the last act of the movie, we mostly see her exercise her power almost quietly. And without kind of the type of specific behavior I think we naturally associate with with kind of dominating authority figures on screen. Kind of like how she switches out the assistant conductor without a ton of fanfare, but is yeah. kind of like doing it, in a, doing it in a way that'll like almost kind of cover up some of like what people might say about her. Like if she had put the uh, Nomi Merlant character in, like I think there was some insinuation that some people would have thought that was more a result of like the kind of favoritism she had already shown towards Olga or something like that. She's like, oh no, I'll... I'll put, I'll put this other person in there. And then that's kind of like me wielding my power in a certain way to kind of still paper over any other kind of uh, things people might cracks in my facade. So I think there's a lot about the dynamic between, between those two characters that isn't necessarily clear. And I would say that's pretty intentional. Um, like I, on some level, I think part of her picking someone else is her moving on. Like, she's kind of gotten everything she wants out of Francesca. She's moving on to Olga. And she kind of has no use for her anymore. And, it's, also and, so, it's, it's also so self-obsessed, she probably doesn't quite fully grasp everything Francesca does for her. Like, yeah. And, 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 thus oh, the extent sure. to, and thus the extent to which Francesca could, like, actually ruin her life. Yeah. No, there, there, and there, there's kind of that moment with, uh, 
Su- Susan is the name of her, her wife in the movie? Yes. <laughs> okay. Uh, sorry, I know the actress's name, but it's been a while, so I-, I, I Nina I Haas. Yeah, no, I, I, okay, quick, quick tangent, but the casting in this movie has some of, like, my favorite rising or established European character actors of, like, international. Yes. Actors, so, mm-hmm. but there's that conversation they have where basically the only, uh, God, what's the, I, I'm blanking on the exact word, but the only relationship that is not about you getting something from someone transactional. is with, transactional. transactional. Transactional is the word they use. The only non-transactional relationship you have is with our daughter. Every other relationship Lydia has with someone on some level is transactional. It is less about what is the connection I have with you? What, how do I honestly view you as a person? And more, what can I get out of you? Whether it is intimacy, whether it is something more tangible in terms of career advancement, whether it's something else, that is on some level how she views other people. But I do, th- I, I think it's interesting because especially since Francesca basically disappears from the movie once she disappears from Lydia's life, we there are a lot of aspects of that relationship that are never clearly or cleanly stated on screen. And I think even if we have a rough picture of what their relationship was, I don't think we have an entirely clear picture and I think that's by design. I completely agree. And that's again, like, I feel like so much of this film is just kind of, it's just like osmosis. It's never shown, but it just bleeds in um, to the storyline. And then it just sticks in your brain and you're kind of guessing like, you know, what happened between them? But first, I think in my perspective, I feel like it's pretty clear Francesca and her probably had some sort of sexual relationship to some degree. Um, No, I I would definitely agree that there are pieces of the relationship that are definitely clear. It's just there are a lot of, mm -hmm. like, I I, I do think that the fact that there was a sexual relationship, that that she was someone similar to what Krista was, to what she was hoping Olga would be. Uh, yeah. in terms of Lydia's life but it's just there are a lot of specifics about the relationship that I don't think are oh yeah like none yeah. of none of that is ever explicitly like shown yeah or anything which I think is great but yeah I I wanted to get your opinion on this both of you because I was kind of debating like well did she not give Francesca the assistant or um, assistant position because um that would be a good way to kind of throw people off the trail, so to speak. If she knows that there's already like whispers and rumors that she's favoring people she may have had relationships with, could she just throw Francesca under the bus to kind of save her own skin? Maybe, or is it more so that that relationship, whatever it was, was kind of boring to her now? Well, I think think we just kind of like talked about both those possibilities. And again, Mm -hmm. like you're saying, like, I think, it's, it's okay that the movie doesn't like make it explicit what the answer to that is, but it's, it's either that, like you said, get, get them off the trail or also like Ben kind of intimated at like that transactional relationship is done. She's gotten all she wants out of it. But again, like I, I, cause we're like, I, I believe we're led to believe later in the movie that like, you know, like uh, with the whole thing about the emails and all that, like, like she, I, I think, I don't think she has to like trust Francesca to do everything she wants, but like, I mean, Francesca ultimately it seems like turns over some of those emails in that lawsuit. And it's like, yeah, she might think she's gotten all she wants out of it. So it's more comfortable for her if Francesca's is gone. She doesn't have her there just like, hey, when's this promotion coming? When's this promotion coming? Like, that's just a nuisance. And someone as powerful mm-hmm. as her, like, probably thinks they can do away with a nuisance without much of an issue. And like, but like, again, she's kind of like 
I, like, I, like, I, like I already kind of noted, I think she's just blind to like the consequences of like being uh, of like just treating like being so um, uh, nonchalant with how she does away with that connection. And well, it's, I, I it's, it's a fault. It, it's, it's, it's just, a, it, it's just her. I, I think it's just her, you know, just being too brazen with how she goes about it. And it ultimately comes back to bite her and regardless of the reason why she did it, but like there's two equally compelling possibilities. Sorry. What were you going to say, Ben? Yeah. So it's again, been a while. So correct me if I'm wrong on this, but at yeah. that point in the movie, there had been a few instances of, again, from Lydia's perspective, not what they actually were, Mm-hmm. Things that could be associated as like acts of rebellion. Think moments of Francesca mm-hmm. not exactly doing exactly what she wanted to do. And part of this is kind of her continued connection with Krista. Right. So on some level, the other aspect of how I viewed her passing Francesca on for kind of the, the assistant conductor role, it's a punishment. Mm-hmm. And for her, it's almost a casual thing because that is the power she wields. She is able to do this thing that in terms of Francesca's career and is shattering her entire life. This is the thing that she has been expecting that she's going to receive. This is where her career path is going. And with basically what is to Lydia an inconsequential act, she punishes her by taking that away. And again, I don't think the real answer is any one of these things. I think the real answer is a messy combination of punishment, covering her ass, and moving on to a new transactional relationship. Mm. All kind of glued together by Lydia's general lack of caring for other people. Mm. Um, It's not one thing because nothing we do is ever for one single reason. Right. Um, Hmm. What, what what about I guess I guess where I want to where I might want to go from there then is just because I think I me mean, I do think in some ways that that decision is like like I, like I already said I think it leads to part of her undoing because I think like uh, Francesca is kind of responsible for uh, some of what ultimately kind of comes up in that lawsuit and we led to, and that, that kind of leads to her kind of like you know losing some of those positions and all that we've already talked about how like, impressed we are at the fact that like he did handle this subject matter pretty well and like yeah it's it's kind of touching on what we like to refer to as cancel culture but like again it's like Ben said, I don't necessarily think it's, I don't necessarily think it's reactive to that, but we are seeing like what it might look like for someone in this, in this situation to like suffer the consequences if uh, of their actions, if nothing else. And I'm, but at the same time, like we've seen a lot of examples in real life of some people like, yeah, certainly the, the me too areas led to like a lot of people being somewhat excommunicado, but we've seen some people be, be a little too big for it too. And, you know, it takes, it takes different levels of like, you know, evidence or different levels of actual transgressions for someone to actually like truly suffer consequences. And I think we're, we're seeing that at different points of this movie, like she's able to, it seems like move forward and compartmentalize. And like, at at some point it looks like, Hey, she still goes on that tour. And I think it's, I think it speaks a lot that she brings Olga to New York, you know, and she and thinking like, I think that's she's thinking it's going to turn into a sexual relationship, even if it doesn't, I think she, she doesn't even care that like what the, she doesn't even care about the optics of that. Cause she doesn't think it's going to like, actually like ultimately mean that much at the end of the day. Like it still says a lot about what she thinks can actually hurt her. I'm wondering like how you guys thought the movie kind of like walked that tightrope of being like, yeah, like, yeah, certainly people are going to like more so than not, like we're a little more sensitive to these things. And some people are going to suffer consequences. Some people are too big for it. It's going to take certain things to bring people down. What, Caleb, what did you think about the way it ultimately like 
showed her downfall because I think I've some a couple of criticisms I've heard said the last act of the movie was a little slow. Don't know if I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I again, I, I, I don't, I think it may be a little slower than other parts of the movie, but at the same time, like, I think it's very, everything in the movie is very intentional. I'm wondering what you thought about how it ultimately showed like what it is that kind of led to Lydia actually like losing that status that she so carefully like held on to in the first act. Yeah. Yeah. Regarding the third act of the film, I feel like the pace is less intense and, you know, I, I didn't find it slow. Um, I found it very interesting because I think throughout the movie, and you kind of just touched on this as well, Josh, is she still feels kind of invincible. She doesn't really believe this is going to actually bite her in the ass. When she's approached by the board of a fellowship that this um, first, this like horribly edited like TikTok or something was online and Twitter. But then also there's this article in the New York Post. She says like, oh, like who reads that magazine anyway? So just kind of this like out of touch dismissive idea. And then she ends up taking Olga to New York anyways. Um, So she's just still not really understanding. This is kind of a big deal. This might actually really hurt you. She also doesn't mention it to her partner, Susan, who ends up, that kind of ends up costing her that relationship to some degree. And then as things get out of control and as she becomes more aware that she's losing her power, then she kind of breaks. And I think what really did her end was, you know, <laughs> the crazy walkout scene where she ends up just getting into like a literal scuffle and <laughs> beating up the director who's using her uh, score, whose character, the character, I can't even remember his name. Elliot? But yeah, I mean, we've seen some people who sh- should be more in trouble than they actually are, you know, who've engaged in really serious sexual assaults or type of behavior who have somehow wormed their way back into the industry and you're like huh that that shouldn't be allowed that shouldn't happen so like but yeah so i think the the moment that she couldn't come back from was when she got into the physical fight on the orchestra floor unfortunately me too accusations don't always stick on people as much as they should that i don't think if this is real somebody could come back from So I feel like that is the moment where she truly loses it all. And also part of her motivation there is probably from perhaps the first time she realized that she might not be able to come back from this. I think she finally figured out, you know, this hurt her career, this hurt her relationships. Um, So it's through that realization, she just loses it. It's also the first time someone else is, touching her art which is like her soul her life the one aspect about you know her person that i think she puts in the most energy the most time and the most care so well it's not just her art it's also her legacy yeah because Mm -hmm. part 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 of this particular performance is it was her attempt to basically finish the cycle it was like the i believe it was the first composer to compose for every uh piece in this particular cycle and and it was meant to be kind of a feat that she was going to be the one to accomplish it and to have like this wasn't just a random show that like a a random performance that someone else was doing it was something very particular that was meant to be part of the capstone Mm -hmm. to Lydia Toth and I think part of her anger part of her frustration isn't just with the like 
and this is sort of the thing that addresses like what what does it mean to be quote unquote canceled that I do think the movie does touch on in an interesting way. It's not just kind of what opportunities are you cut off from. It's what happens to your legacy, what happens to the way people view you. And especially with Lydia Tarr, whose entire identity is so carefully constructed. Um, Because again, this is something I mentioned early on that I'm really looking forward to getting back to. Lydia Tarr is not Lydia Tarr. Her, her name is Linda Tarr. And she has chosen basically a stage name that fits in with kind of her understanding of one of the historically great European artists. Like even the idea of kind of the accent mark in her last name. Like I, I saw someone say that like even the title of the movie is a joke. Mm. And again, her, like the, the character's actual name is Tar T-A-R-R kind of standard salt of the earth like midwestern american name and she has chosen to create this identity around a persona of lydia Tar, of lydia tar great cosmopolitan artist and the thing with kind of these scandals that kind of they, they may not cause her to lose her position like long term but they do change the way people view lydia view the persona of lydia tar and for someone whose lifelong project has been the construction of this identity, that is something that is intolerable to um, But I you... also think the interesting thing about her staging the orchestra, straight, orchestra stage as the moment she can't come back from is it is something, it does raise an interesting point about public behavior versus private behavior, because that is something people see direct evidence of. Anything else, it's easy for people to create their own narratives about how they can dismiss it but something public that they have seen that is in front of everyone that sticks in a different way in light of that i'm wondering could we didn't talk a ton about her at home life yet also um and i mean i guess we kind of got away from that a little bit when we got toward because that most of that's kind of already taken is is in the past by the time we get to the point where she's you know charging the stage and whatnot but like I mean, how do you reconcile, I guess, I, I guess that kind of goes along with me asking, like, how do you reconcile, like, all this stuff we're talking about with, like, cultivating a public image for, like, with, like, her terrorizing the little girl at school? Uh, what, what, what did you, what, what, did you guys have any thoughts on that scene where it's, like, she just, like, I mean, uh, it, it, again, like, in some ways, it's, like, yeah, the relationship she has with her daughter might be, like, the one non-transactional thing and the healthiest relationship in her life, but, like, uh, she's still willing to, like, you know, go go to go to the school and act like a monster towards and i'll be a bully but still like a little kid uh i guess it's kind of like something where it's like because it's because it's in private she's not necessarily having to worry too much about like what it looks like 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 she says like well who's going to believe that little girl you know and she can just give into like a more base impulse there i guess i saw that as just kind of um not foreshadowing but you know it is a perfect example of how Lydia tar uses her power Mm. I, albeit it's a pretty aggressive um, maneuver to just <laughs> threaten a child, but she knows she can. And it's also someone who's young and a, a, a literal child and who's going to move them. So that kind of, um, you know, that's a thread that carries throughout the film. It was also just kind of funny. I found mm. it interesting. She introduced herself as Lydia's father because also kind of throughout the movie, you see Lydia kind of, rebuff any idea 
that it's neat that she's a woman and she has all this power. At the outset, she's kind of like, well, you know, that doesn't really apply to me. You should ask somebody else about that question as to like what it's like to be a female conductor. I'm just a conductor, which I see sometimes in other very famous people who kind of don't want to be boxed in as you know the female director. Not saying it's good impulse, but you see both that aspect of her personality and also how she can be threatening when she wants to be or needs to be um, to protect something she cares about. I mean, not not to kind of say whether that impulse is good or bad, but I think within the context of Lydia as a character, the the composers, the conductor, I mean, the conductors she she grew up admiring, she doesn't want to be as a seen as a token among them. She wants to be one of them, and and I think for her, that's why kind of being talked about as almost kind of being a female conductor makes you a novelty. That I think that's the way Lydia as a character views that, and that's why she reacts the way she does. Mm-hmm. And again, there is a lot more complexity to that response and what it does to the way people act. I may not be the best person to kind of speak on that, but I do think that she like she doesn't want to be seen as something new. She wants to be part of the canon. Mm-hmm. And that desire to be part of this historical group that she admires. I do think this is circling back to kind of stepping into the shoes of great artists, point that I brought up earlier. It does cause her to take the bad along with the good. Um, Because everything about Lydia's character in terms of the way she uses her power, artistic domination, she is not the first composer to do this. She's not the first great artist to do this. She is in many ways behaving as a lot of great artists have historically been enabled to behave. Um, And I do think something the movie touches on, but again, without didactically speaking on, is the question of, is there a willingness to punish her? Because like a, a queer woman for things that men before her have done and men around her have done that they are on some level escaping punishment for that she is an acceptable person to face punishment for things that many people have done. Yeah, I hadn't even quite heard that point made. That's an interesting one. I guess in light of all that, I am wondering, and I'll, I'll, as I usually do guys, before I, after I jump here, I'll go back and allow you to bring up anything else we didn't touch on yet that you want to talk about. I want to know where you, what you think about where this movie ends. And because I think that's a, it's a fascinating, one of the most fascinating final shots I've seen in a movie in quite some time that's going to stick with me. And I've heard a lot of different readings of it too. And, uh, and I think it, it somewhat ties into the fact that we see Lydia in this place where we see her at the end of this movie. And, uh, and I'm talking about the final shot, but if you have anything to add about this, the, the rest of the, the Asian sequence leading up to that, I'm curious too, but like the fact that she is doing the job she is doing at the end of this movie in light of what you're saying about how she wants to be, you know, thought of in a lot of the, the same class, a lot of these great men. What did you make about that Ben? Cause you just gave a big fist pump when I asked about that shot. Oh my God. I love that ending so much. Um, so I actually do want to speak on the scene leading up to it, too. Okay. Uh, early on in the movie, we're introduced to an important part of Lydia's story, basically being her going to study music in Africa. Hmm. Um, and this almost kind of anthropological, kind of ethnomus- like ethnomusicology aspect of her background that we kind of associate with her honest connection to music. In that last sequence we are sort of led to believe that she is doing that again. 
that after being removed from her position within society, her position of power, she's trying to kind of get back in touch with the music by going on this kind of anthropological pilgrimage. To me, to me at least, that's the way the scene is framed. She's getting back in touch with something genuine. And then that last shot, or that last like moment, because the shot to the cosplayers leading up to it echoes it too. She has not done that. She is going to be a conductor wherever she is allowed to be a conductor, which means in this case, conducting video game music. And there is something, and again, this is not, the, the ending, like most other moments in the movie, contains a lot. It, it contains a lot. There's not one direct reading we are meant to have of it. Yeah. There is something liberating about it, and that she has found a place where she's still able to do what she loves. But there is also something deeply pathetic about it. And I think the movie, the the ending, and the way it's framed allows us to have both of those readings. Um, although I do think something interesting, and this sort of goes to the complexity of how we're meant to be the, the moment. The actual composer of the movie, who I'm about to butcher this name, uh, <laughs> Hildur, Hildur Guonadotir, who has sort of become one of the more celebrated and established composers in recent years. Did she win the Oscar for Joker? She won the Oscar for Joker. She's done a lot outside of that, too. She's actually composed music for video games before. And I do think that there is something, it's like, there is something pathetic about it, but it's also not solely meant to be viewed as oh my god she's conducting music for video games how embarrassing <laughs> like i do think the embarrassing thing is for her the character to be there but it's not the act itself that's embarrassing but hey, well, you there, get, there... K- K- sorry i was gonna say kayla you nodded when uh ben made the comment that like one reading is that it's pathetic did you have a did it strike you in any particular way or when, when i just when, when um, had that revelation i was going to use the exact same word so i was just like yeah but it's interesting because we have slightly different perspectives and interpretations of the ending so i feel like it's pathetic to see as an audience member her fall from from grace you know from the berlin philharmonic the most revered to a children's orchestra abroad somewhere conducting for cosplayers so yeah that's pretty pathetic little sad to see but for me What I saw is she was just as serious and just as passionate about that role as she would be at the Berlin Philharmonic. So for me, I I saw somebody who really was just as passionate and as serious about her position and the music itself that she almost didn't even realize, like at least during the performance, that this was a kind of a pitiful position. We see it as the audience member, but I think in that moment, perhaps maybe she didn't. That was my interpretation. Um, so, you know, I felt that kind of also brought home the point that, oh, this, this woman actually, one, is a genius, but two, does love her craft. Um, it wasn't all about the power for her, but yeah, also pathetic and funny. I, I don't disagree with that reading yeah. at all, honestly. And, and again, this sort of goes back to the point of why I think it's such a great ending. There are any, like, again, it contains any number of possible readings. And I think m- many of them are equally valid. And, and, and I absolutely agree that it is striking that she treats it with the same seriousness, with the same passion 
as she does what we would view as her more prestigious conducting work. Forget what we would view her more prestigious conducting work. But I do think there is something, especially the way it is framed in contrast to kind of the artistic pilgrimage lens that I, I at least view kind of the scene leading up to it as, mm -hmm. there is meant to be a jarring disconnect. Yeah. And I don't know, I, I, I think it's sort of just a brilliant joke at the end of the movie, but it is also a reflection of the complexity of this person who is clinging to identity, is clinging to being Lydia Tarr, and clinging to being Lydia Tarr wherever she will be allowed to be Lydia Tarr, but who also does very seriously love and have an honest passion for what she does. But I think the question for me is how much of that ending is her honestly going back to pursuing what she loves and how much of it is an act of self-delusion mm -hmm. of, of her trying to pretend that she is still who she is even if she is not allowed to be that person anymore and I don't think there's one simple answer to it which it, it's just why it's a great ending to me. I'm not sure if this I'm not sure if there's much to like I don't, I don't think we're not necessarily supposed to read into like how lucrative it is or is not to like do that work. But I think one other thing I thought about, and I have no idea if it was his intention, what was Todd Field's intention was that like these people are staying, having these people often stay having jobs, even if they're not ones you often see, you know, like for all the talk about cancel culture, like there's so many people out there that have been quote unquote canceled that are doing all right financially still. And that's just another thought I had while watching this. Like there's still someone funding Woody Allen movies. There's David or Russell just had a big movie come out, you know, like, uh, um, you know, like there's, there's, there's like, oh, like there's always going to be like something out there. If you're, if you're that level of talented, someone's probably going to pay you to do it. And it's just another thought I had on top of everything else though. I don't think it was one of the, one of the big takeaways, but I just do think it is fascinating how such a, such an interesting visual can like inspire so many different, uh, so, so many different readings. You know, the so. way I read her as a character is at least she is financially established enough that economic security is not something that's really a massive factor right. for her. Yeah. Um, I think she, I think like, we're going to she has two apartments in Berlin, one just to go work at sometimes. I yeah. think she's doing okay. She's, she's doing fine. I, I, I think like what, again, whether it's from just uh, the money she made as conductor of the orchestra or money she's made from being on various boards or whatever, I, I think we're meant to view her as being financially well off enough that the consequence of, Oh God, what do I like, what can I do to survive? Isn't really a factor in, how she chooses to act. She has enough financial freedom to basically do whatever in that regard, at least the way the movie frames it. That makes sense. That makes sense. But yeah, I, I guess my, my initial, my, my, my initial uh, take on it was like, I, I guess I, I, I kind of took it all in myself. I was like, I think initially it was like, oh, wow. Like that's a funny note to go out on. Look how, look how far she's fallen. Ha ha. But like, it kind of made the, the context Kayla put in also kind of made sense. And like, it's like, she is like very, very intense. We should note that, uh, cause we haven't even talked that much about Cape Blanchett. I feel like that's one other thing we need to do before we get out of here is give any other thoughts we have though. I think Ben already made it clear. Like you think she should, she should be, uh, handed some hardware along, along these next six months. But like, I mean, she learned how to like, apparently she learned how to conduct whatever that means for an actor. However, to whatever extent they need to do it. She took it seriously. She learned how to do it. And she seems very, very intense in those final moments. And uh, just as much as when we, the few times, because you don't actually see that much of her conducting, uh, you know, throughout the, throughout the entirety of the movie. Uh, but like the few times you see her do it in places other than that final scene, you wouldn't really know the difference until you have the wide shot. So I think it, I, I do think it's really cool how you can take so many different things from those final moments. 
Um, well, everything we've said about the complexity of the movie's tone, everything we've said about the complexity of the issues surrounding it, because it is a character study and everything does arise from Lydia as a character, none of that works without Blanchett's performance and without her ability to incarnate the complexity of Lydia as a person. Um, and there is a, a moment we really see her slip just in terms of a feat of performance, especially because the movie does contain so many wonders and long takes and moments that rely on her to go through an incredibly complex internal array of emotions in one moment. It, it It's really just an incredible performance. Uh, we never lose sight of the core of Lydia as a character. And again, the her ability to kind of physically conduct in what I at least viewed as an authentic way is just kind of the icing on top of what to me is an incredible performance. To be clear, I actually don't think she is going to win, but I hope she does. Any other Kate Blanchett thoughts, Kayla? I always have a whole bunch. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, but in regards to this movie, I mean, this was written for her specifically. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. And I completely understand why I truly don't think anyone else would have the chops to pull this off. Um, I mean, I could maybe see Tilda Swinton, but it would be a very different. It would be a very different flavor yeah. of a movie. Yeah. Um, but yeah, few and far between. Yeah, I mean, you need a, a master actor um, to to do this. And I just think a lot of those scenes were like she, not just the opening scene, but like when she's talking to her mentor in that restaurant. Like a lot of the scenes, like that, were just like sitting down talking like it's it, 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 the way like i guess she inhabits the character and like kind of like even in moments like she just really it really radiates intelligence in a way like i mean and even before even before like you've gotten to the point where you just understand how flawed that she is as a person uh it's like i i, I mean i think a lot of that goes to the writing too but like it, not not just anyone can like deliver that kind of dialogue and uh not seem like completely off-putting and just like too full of themselves and just for how, just how intellectually superior they are you don't really find her off-putting until you see her actually start like treating people poorly but it's like wow this is like a smart person i'm just captivated listening to her talk and yeah. that was some of the stuff that like impressed me the most you know the, the other piece of it too is it's not just an intelligence it's a very calculated intelligence because so much of who this character is is a performance mm -hmm. and so on some level we are watching a character act and yeah. <laughs> one of the things that is incredibly difficult about that is keeping, as an actor, is keeping sight of both the performance of your character and the internal life of the character as almost two separate aspects of the same performance. And I think we see both of, of, of those characters reflected in the single character of Lydia Tarr. Like mm -hmm. the, the moment of performance that I've seen talked about a lot that I actually think is really brilliant is her very pathetic failed seduction of Olga in New York, which it, like, it, it's, I mean, it's cruel and predatory into all of these things, but it is very funny how pathetic this, like we are watching this character become. And again, we, this is very recognizably the same person we have seen be just as dominating and self-assured in so much of the rest of the movie it's the same person and even though the behavior is significantly different and significantly more pathetic we we see the connective tissue in all of it kayla any 
anything else about the movie we have not touched on that you wanted to talk about? Nothing. I mean, other than the fact that it's a really good movie. We've already mentioned that. Um, and I think also, aside from Kate being brilliant um, in her acting ability, I do think she as a human does have this sort of ethereal gravitas to her presence that feeds well into Lydia Tarr, where I could definitely see, you know, somebody like Tilda Swinton inhabiting, because she also kind of carries that with her as well. But yeah, no, nothing else to add other than me recommending everybody yeah. see it if they're able to. Yeah, I, I was about to say it was like a daunting task to like try and think about who else could do this, but then it's like very quickly you realize like, ah, probably not too many other actresses going to pull that off. Uh, very ben, short list. Ben, what, what, anything else on your mind that we didn't touch on yet? Yeah, I mean, I, one thing I do want to bring up is, yeah. again, we've mentioned Nina Haas, we've mentioned uh, Noemi Merlant. I know it, it's very easy to kind of focus on on uh, Kate Blanchett as the performance that carries the movie. But again, this is an incredibly talented uh, ensemble cast. Noemi Merlant, obviously, Portrait of a Lady on Fire, one of the best movies of the last couple of years, an incredible performance in that movie. Uh, Nina Haas, I'm a big fan of a director named Christian Petzold, who's a German filmmaker who's done some really incredible movies over the last like 20 years. And for about 10 of those years, Nina Haas was his regular star. Uh, really inc incredible actress. I think she does a lot. Of, she does a great job with a role that it would be very easy for a lesser actress to disappear. And uh, basically it would be very easy for a lesser actress to disappear in the dominating presence of Kate Blanchett as Lydia Tarr. And I think the fact that Haas as the much more, I would say sharp and neurotic and less dominating presence of Susan feels as tangible and present as she does it is, is a testament to the strength of uh, Haas's performance. Um, I mean, Julian Glover, Mark Strong, it's, it's, it's a really strong cast. Yeah, and I, I enjoy when Mark, I enjoy when Mark Strong pops up and does different stuff. And, but though I, I had, a, I had a trouble getting a handle on like what that character's deal was. It's like one second, he's just like a, he's just like a businessman. It seems like he's almost like her, uh, so, like, he's like her, he's like, he's almost seems like he's her agent. Next second, he's like a conductor. And I was just like, man, I'm having trouble, like keeping track of like who he is. <laughs> the, the way I kind of view that character. And, and th this was to me just kind of sort of a joke around kind of every artistic field, you have people who want to be part of that field, but do not have the ability to be part of that field. So on some level, they try to buy their way into association. Hmm. And the way I viewed Mark Strong's character is he wanted to be part, he wanted to be part of the world of classical music, but does not have the ability to be one of the masters who he admires. So he has attempted to kind of pay his way into basically an association with that club. You also hear him struggling with like what he's going to do for like when he actually does like do his own compositions and stuff like that. And you can tell that like Lydia doesn't really have a lot of time for it. And yeah. it's just like, and what, what, what was the line about robots? Um, God, hold on. Yeah. There's no glory for a robot. Do your own thing. She's just like very dismissive. She, I mean, but at the same time, like uh, associated with him because she has some use for him. He helps fund her fellowship program, I guess. You yeah. Know? But no, but overall, I mean, I, I, I really love the movie and it's also like if, if you 
follow the story of Todd Field's career, the the very long gap between uh, Little Children and Tar, it was not by design. He has been trying to get a project off the ground for 16 years now. Uh, and everything he's been associated with it's is almost like th there was an article that summarizes like all of his failed projects and like all of them have gotten so close to actually being made and then something has fallen apart at the last minute i hadn't and, i hadn't read that I, I heard in an interview he's like oh yeah i had a meeting with cape Blanchett about doing something in like 2010 and then like something and then he I, I heard him mention he wrote like one other thing but like he's paid the bills doing commercials so more power to him that he like made it finally made this happen you know yeah but so it's 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 just nice to kind of see him finally back and actually with his first movie that he's written and directed. So, well, well, I, I think it's the first original one because I think he did was Oscar nominated for like writing Little Children, co-writing Little Children with someone else or something like maybe there was something like that. There was something around that I thought. Okay, I think I'm, it's his first original script. I think it's his that first like, original. Yeah, something like that. But like he he did it, he got Oscar nominations. Yeah. For, okay. Yeah. Um, no, you're you're totally right for like write, writing on each of his first two movies. Um, and you would think it's probably going to happen again. All right, uh, before we get out of here, uh, Kayla, um, as we usually do, anything else you've been watching recently you want to direct people to? No, literally. This yeah, yeah, you have, yeah, you, forgot. you already told us. You haven't had a life. You haven't watched anything. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> um, uh, sure. Ben, anything else you want to recommend while we're here? Um, yeah, it's, it's not something I saw super recently, but just because this is the time of the year when people start playing catch up on stuff they may have missed from earlier in the year. Yeah. There's a movie that I really loved that I think at one point we had actually talked about doing a podcast episode on, but it, it didn't work out. Uh, Benediction. Mm. Um, one of the, like, it, it's in my top two for the year so far, and it's going to take something pretty great to, to knock it off of that spot. Uh, it's a Terrence Davies or Terrence Davis biopic of the World War One poet Siegfried Sassoon, and I am normally someone who, if he hears the word biopic, just steers away from it because I think as as a genre, it tends to not be the most interesting to me. Hmm. This is one that like that feels more like a character study about someone who happens to be a historically significant figure than a movie describing the life and accomplishments of a significant historical figure. It is an incredibly rich and shattering movie about art and love and aging and what it means to look back on a life that did not contain what you wanted it to contain. Some of the best performances of the year, maybe the best dialogue I've heard in a movie in a very long time. And it's one that unfortunately, like a lot of Terrence Davis movies kind of came and went without a lot of attention, but it is just a really incredible film that deserves a lot more love than it got. Interesting. Uh, on, on Hulu, I just looked it up. So uh, um, I'm, I will watch that before we get to, if, if I don't, I'm going to watch it before we record our top 10 podcast. I promise you that. Like I did last year with what was your number one, that sounds three good. Hour, that, th that three hour movie that I like, I, 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 I went through just for you. I'll, I'll do that with Benediction too. Um, I think you'll probably like Benediction a lot more than uh, Labyrinth of Cinema, but. Okay. Good, good, good to know. Uh, I, I'm not, I, I feel like I've watched a lot of TV recently. Like, I mean, I've, I'm, I'm, I'm by the end of the year, I'm probably going to watch like a hundred less movies than I did last year. Part of it's work. Part of it's, I think I've just watched more TV, but I'm going to still recommend a movie anyway. Cause it's one that I think we'll have a podcast on within the next 
three weeks of when people are listening to this on with Ben and our friend Elijah on Armageddon time, James Graydon's newest movie. I saw it yesterday as the recording of this podcast. Don't actually know if it's my favorite James Gray movie, but like when uh, Ben and I are in a group chat where a lot of people were talking about his movies yesterday, I went back and looked and like James Gray's never made a movie that's less than four stars in my opinion. And I've seen all of his movies. So I don't know if this is my favorite, but it's certainly worth it. And uh, you know, he's, it, it's an extremely personal movie and it, it's about as exciting as you can make it. If you're just telling the story of a, a coming of age story about a Jewish boy in Queens, in the 19 in 1980, uh, might, might not, we need to say it, put it like that might not sound that exciting, but he finds a lot of really powerful moments and like smaller, like, family moments and uh you know i it's a really good cast though i mean surprisingly not that jewish of a cast for what's a jewish story and i'll i I, i'm still thinking about that too but like i mean i'm never going to say no to watching jeremy strong do stuff on my camera so or on my screen so uh yeah is this going to be like the first time we've done the podcast where you've seen a movie where i've seen a movie more recently than you have that's probably going to be the case because i don't see myself having the time to see it again and i don't know if the theater is going to keep it for another week so uh, that, that'll be kind of, that's kind of funny, but like, you know, you're, the, you're the one that's been busy with work and I'm the one that's about to get busy with work. So we're going to make that happen. Support James Gray movies. It's incredible. He keeps getting these movies made. Cause I don't know if that many people see most of his movies. Uh, so I more power to him for that. Uh, Kayla, before we get out of here, uh, anything you want to plug personally, social media wise or anything like that? Um, nothing other than my Twitter, which is at Kayla Stetzel. So K-A-Y-L-A-S-T-E-T-Z-E-L. All right, Ben, you're just a Twitter lurker, but do you want to plug your letterbox? Uh, yeah, uh, you can find me on Letterboxd. It's under my name. I think you can also find it if you search the plot is lost, one word. But yeah, other than that, um, this is probably going to come out after the midterm election. So I can't exactly plug voting like I did last year. But uh, uh, yes. if you, I, I, I hope you voted. That's, and and, and, and that's for you, hopefully, hopefully your friends vote for Karen Bass is what I'll say, right? Um, oh my God, please. <laughs> but last year you had to plead for uh, everyone to uh, vote for vote for Gavin Newsom, which you never thought you'd really have to do. But like, uh, here, yeah. now, now you got to prevent another Rep- Republican from taking over your state, even if, or yeah. your city, you know? So there you we go. We got to do what we got to do. Um, as usual, I'm Josh Chernovoy, J-O-S-H-J-U-R-N-O-V-O-Y on both Twitter and Letterboxd. Podcast email is realmoviepod at gmail.com. Podcast Twitter is at realmoviepod. Coming up next, uh, might have a podcast on All Quiet on the Western Front with our friends Adam and Fred. And um, I don't really know what's coming after that because I, I honestly don't even know when I'm going to see Wakanda forever because my work schedule is about to get crazy. And But I've already seen Armageddon time. So like I said, I hopefully can have a podcast at some point with our friends, our friend Elijah and Ben on that. So uh plenty to look forward to we're going to keep having stuff coming out just my life's about to get crazy so i don't know the order of any of it but thanks to everyone for listening thanks to uh kayla and ben for joining and we'll see you next time